There is a hope that you feel in gardens that whether it is that you still want to be around when the bulbs come up next spring, whether it is that, you know, you feel really miserable, but that rose smells so amazing. How can the world be all bad when something is that beautiful? And Gertrude Jekyll always cheers me up, even if there's a, a terrible problem. I only have to go and sniff my Gertrude Jekyll rose and the world seems a better place. Welcome to My Garden, My Life, the podcast that inspires you to grow with your garden. I'm Sarah Layton, founder of Growthfully, and my mission is to inspire and support you to enhance your life and mental health by growing your ownership of that precious space outside your home. When we make space in our lives for ourselves, anything is possible. I share conversations with people who inspire me, who have a passion for their garden, plants or flowers which enhances their life and I do this because I want to inspire you to get out there and give it a go gain confidence make the changes you want to your garden and feel the joy that comes with taking ownership and action out there your garden balcony window boxes even can literally change your life Hello and welcome to a new season of My Garden, My Life podcast. It's been a long time coming and several of the conversations were actually recorded some months ago as I tussled with some quite extreme perimenopausal symptoms and resistance to emerging from lockdown over the summer. As I run growthfully by myself, I just had to go with it and accept that my energy was too low. Thankfully, however... With the arrival of autumn and a prescription for HRT, I'm finding myself more energetic. So here we are. And as the Chelsea Flower Show is happening right now, it's the perfect moment to share my conversation with Sue Biggs, OBE, the Director General of the RHS. We actually chatted earlier in the year, just as the RHS had celebrated the opening of its new garden, Bridgewater, and was preparing to launch the Hilltop Wellbeing Garden at Wisley. We discussed the challenges of leading such a big organisation and the importance of making gardening inclusive and becoming much more diverse, which are themes that Sue is passionate about. We also explore the way in which Sue's experience growing up and her garden impact her life and have helped her heal. As she says, roses make everything better and there is such sweet joy in feeling the earth beneath your bare feet. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. So you're the Director General at the RHS. What does that mean? What does that involve? Director General in in any other speak would be the Chief Executive. So it's my job to make sure that we're both a charity and a business. So as an organisation, it's something that's a really satisfying thing, I have to say. I was in the commercial world all the time um, in the travel industry all the time up to coming here. And whilst I loved that for 30 years, I find working for a charity even more satisfying. I, I found always producing bottom line results for shareholders sometimes got a little bit wearing. And to come to where you know you're giving back and transforming people's lives and helping transform communities and the environment and people's health and well-being. Personally, I find extremely satisfying. Absolutely. So what is it, what's your sort of favourite, is that a fair question, to ask you what your 
favourite part of of what you're doing at the RHS is? What's where's well, my part? Well, my my di- my diplomatically correct, but also as as it happens, true answer is. I love the job because it's so varied. It's, you know, it is both, it's both the charity and it's the business. It's both all about the marketing side. It's about the retail side. It's about the scientific research. It's about the highest standards of horticulture. It's about our education with our qualifications. It's about our community outreach. It's about all the press and communications that we make. It's about our website. It's about our podcasts. It's, it's that variety that is so inspiring. But what really underpins it all and why I ultimately love it and adore it. I mean, I've been a member for decades. I love gardening. I love plants. But what really underlines it all for me is it's all about people. And COVID time for me has been horrendous because I haven't been able to see people and be with people. And I know some people have enjoyed working from home, but I've hated it. (laughs) More sort of naturally extrovert and happy to be out there. I just love being with people. You know, I get my energy and my inspiration from other people. And uh, when you're starved of that, it becomes a bit of a, a greyer world, I would say, without people. Absolutely. Completely agree. And it's interesting, this stepping back slowly, slowly. I had my first hug with a, with a non-bubble person yesterday. Well, me too. Me too. At the opening of Bridgewater, I was hugging all over the place, I have to admit. you were. Masked and hugging <laughs> in the garden. I was very cautiously hugging, only outside and masked, as you say. Yeah. So tell me about Bridgewater, because obviously that is your new big baby. Oh, um, it's just a magical day yesterday, a very emotional day for all of us, I think. Um, you know, some of us have been involved since we dared to dream about getting a fifth garden which was in 2013. So what, that's eight years ago. It all began. We actually started all the legal side of it, if you like, and the the work to acquire it started six years ago. And then we started actually creating it four years ago. And, you know, various members of the team have joined at different stages in the journey. And it's been so wonderful to to have such a warm welcome from the people of Salford, from the mayor of Salford, to the chief executive of Salford City Council, to the councillors, to the amazing volunteers that we've had from all the villages of Salford and the towns of Greater Manchester. Yeah, I mean, we've had over 800 people from Salford who volunteered to come in the garden and help us, whether it's, I mean, really, some days over these years that I've just described, some days it's, it's resembled more the sun, to be perfectly honest there, the mud and the rain that has fallen on that garden. It's no wonder it looks so lovely and lush and green now. But our volunteers have always been helping us get there and always smiling. And yesterday, what was so special about the opening was that so many people there who've played a part in creating Bridgewater. So it really is, it's the first time in 160 years that the RHS has actually created a new garden from scratch. All the other gardens, our four gardens that we currently had, a a, a smaller garden existed there at its heart when we were very generously donated it. But this is the first time since uh, 1861 that we've actually created a whole new garden. And the number of people, everybody that was there yesterday had all played a part in that. And that's very special and very emotional. And we have a fantastic team there at Bridgewater. And I know that garden. It's just its early days. You know, it's, it's going to grow and evolve and flourish. The horticulture in it, which is amazing with designers like Tom Stewart Smith, Charlotte Harris and Hugo Bug all involved. 
community grow garden, a well-being garden, a learning garden. But the you know the garden will just grow into the future, and the community engagement will be at the very heart. You know, this is for the first time for the RHS. We deliberately created it with the community in mind and with the community involved. And I was going to ask you about that because that's an incredible opportunity to create spaces deliberately with the activities in mind that you want to... Yeah, and the children's play area is fantastic. So to be engaging more young kids and reconnecting them with nature and with plants and with gardening is just fantastic. And that's really exciting for us to be more open, more accessible, more people of every age and every background is really so great for us to be doing that because, you know, we we have been perceived to be may even have been in the dim and distant past, have been quite a posh gardening club, some people would have said. But certainly in my 10 years here, we've all tried really hard to become more open and accessible. And, you know, we want more and more young members. We want more and more members from ethnically diverse backgrounds and really to try and make it accessible for everyone. Yes, and, actually, um, that's one of the things that I was going to talk to you about. I heard Glenn Willie. Yes, yes, our diversity and inclusion manager. He's fantastic. Yeah, I heard him talking, I think he was talking to Sage Flowers, who are two women in London who are florists, and he was talking to them about diversity and inclusion and the RHS and what the plans are for it. And well, I, yes, Paul, Paul Glenn was, was appointed last March <laughs> and then COVID hit, so he wasn't actually able to join us until August of last year, but he's made a tremendous impact on the organisation and it's perfect timing with the opening of Bridgewater where there's far more diverse communities right around the garden there. And, you know, with everything that we've done there with, even before opening, with social prescribing, getting different community groups, different ethnicities coming in, teaching us about the the way they'd like to learn about gardening. Yes. And and teaching about their ways of gardening. Yes. Yeah. Completely different. Yeah, absolutely. And the plants and the indigenous food plants that, that people grow yes yes so i think it's you know it's it's going to be a, a, a very inspirational garden and i hope the people of salford greater manchester and from further afield will go and visit it because i mean it's 154 acres and of course it's not all developed yet that will take years as we grow into the future but there's a paradise garden there a kitchen garden and all the community spaces that i explained meadows woodland two amazing lakes beautiful one the original Ellesmere Lake and another one that we've created and a Chinese streamside garden that is just so beautiful that we've worked with the local Chinese community and somebody who's a gentleman made a donation didn't he yes I was just going to say is that 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 whole idea is led by an amazing gentleman called Dr Lee who's based between Manchester and Hong Kong, Hong Kong businessman and he well we already have christened him the, the, the grandfather of the garden because he made an amazingly generous personal donation to enable this garden to kick off. And now with this extra lake and the Chinese streamside garden, it's just so beautiful with all the the rocks, just as you'd imagine from a Chinese garden with aces planted and willows and there's wooden Chinese bridges that just look beautiful there. And there's plans for into the future with them as well. So There is real magic when you get, you know, the plants and the culture of China mixing with the plants and the culture of the UK. And that cultural interchange is already there in horticulture. You know, plants that we think are quintessentially English, like roses and clematis, 
it always makes me laugh and think, well, actually, they're Chinese. So Yes, absolutely. And they were collected and discovered. And I'm doing uh, inverted commas because this idea of discovering plants yes. is nonsensical because the people who lived in those places already knew those plants. It's kind yes. of colonial, rather high and mighty, arrogant sort of idea that we discovered that they were discovered i i think there was such joy at finding these plants i think people just wanted to share the knowledge of these i mean it's hard to imagine now because you know we're all so connected the world now but to try and put yourself back in that era and those people's minds can you imagine what it must have been like to see their first ever rose, their first ever camellia, that, you know, we all know it now and it's just, oh, well, yeah, fine. But it must have been, and they just wanted to share it with their world. And in those days, their world meant just back to the UK. There wasn't all the, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have television. It was a very different time then. So in your own garden? Yes. Yes. Tell me about your own garden and your own experience. Were you Have you always been a gardener? Yeah, I've been a gardener since I was seven. My mum gave me for my seventh birthday a pack of seeds and a trowel and a square yard of our garden that she'd pegged out for my birthday. And I thought it was such a rubbish present. I remember. I remember thinking, what? A handful of miserable brown seeds, bit of metal with the trowel and some string of the square. And she said, no, 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 trust me, trust me. By the time your big sister's birthday, so my elder sister Kim, it's her birthday in the middle of June, my birthday's at the end of April. So she said, we'll plant these seeds today on your birthday. And I promise you, it's like magic. By Kim's birthday, you will see what's going to come up. And I couldn't believe it. You know, there are all these beautiful, pretty, she was absolutely right. It was almost to the day for the Virginia stock that it was just like, pretty tiny little magic flowers came up and I've been hooked ever since. I I suppose there was a time between, I don't know, hmm, 16 and 27, I think. I didn't do much gardening because I was more interested in boys and university. And then I I got to buy my own flat. So then I got back to having a garden again. So yeah, short intermission between 16 and 27. I suspect I did very little gardening. I think, I think lots of people stop, you know, discover it in childhood and then don't do very much. I was busy having children at that stage and I remember not really being able to make my seeds grow. I mean, it was my job to make them grow, but I'd, I'd sow them and I'd stick them in a spare room somewhere that wasn't in the way. And then I'd remember this, them 10 days later and, of course, they'd be all long and lanky or completely flat or just never managed. I think seeding children is probably a bit more demanding than seeding plants. Exactly. I just didn't manage to do two things at once, and it's only in the last... I've got a greenhouse as as of the last three years, and it's just a joy to be growing. Yes, that's I promised myself when I retire, I'm going to buy myself a greenhouse, which will be the first time in my life I've had one. Yes. that would be very exciting. Oh, well, it's an amazing... I mean, it's a real learning curve. I found I found as a real learning curve, and the, and the um the sort of having the self control not to sow so many things that you have nothing, nothing you know nowhere to put them all. Nowhere to put them. Well, <laughs> I, I'm afraid I have no self control with plants, as all as our lovely team here in the plant centre at Wisley can tell you. I I can very easily fill my whole car with plants, and then I get home to my garden and look and think, hmm, 
there's not really much space in the garden to get these in. So another little bit of lawn gets shaved off. So I can get the <laughs> So you're a plant collector? Just a plain plant addict. Can't can't go past and the shows are even worse. I remember once coming back from Hampton. I'd just moved into my house, which was a, a I'd just got divorced and moved into a much smaller house and a much smaller garden and um there wasn't really anything in it, which was great from that point of view. But Hampton Court flower show, flower show that year. I remember David, the David Austin team thought I'd gone mad because I bought 21 of their roses that year. Wow. And got them all. I've got a convertible, my car. And so I could get them all stashed in. So I, I'm, I'm very good at being a plant addict. Yeah. Yes. Well, any of us who love plants know that concept of the I, my... My car, when I was really actively designing, used to have holes in its ceiling from <laughs> where the, where the bamboo it. panes went through the bit of fabric that was supposed to be there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, so, the joy of gardening, hey? Yes. Keeps us all going strong. A little break in the conversation to tell you about my garden coaching and design business, Growthfully which sponsors these podcasts because I'm passionate about sharing the love, guiding and supporting other women to make the most of that precious space outside your door. I help people go from feeling disappointed and frustrated with their outdoor space to creating a relationship with it in which they feel confident and satisfied. Instead of looking out the window and feeling sad, I can help you step outside into a place that lifts your heart, all without taking over. I offer a collaboration, I share my skills with you through coaching and design packages, and I'd love to help you. So if this sounds interesting, please visit www.growthfully.co.uk to find out more. I can't wait to help you. So what sort of garden have you got? What do you what do you like to do out there? I mean, I you know, I've got a pretty full on job, so I don't have a huge amount of time for gardening. So I've got far too many weeds in my garden. But anyway, one ma- one person's weeds is another person's wildflower. I was going so to that's say, fine. It's, a mind, it's a mindset, isn't it? It is. I like dandelions in my lawn. Um, so, but I love, I mean, I, 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 I suppose I've got a fairly eclectic mix of what I love, really. I love aces. I love grasses. I love roses. I love lavender. I love digitalis. I love geums. I'm going around the head. I love... Alliums. Uh, I'm just going round the garden now thinking I love ferns, uh, peonies, mm, few dahlias. I sort of have a love-hate affair with dahlias. I sometimes yes. love them and sometimes loathe them. I don't like dahlias. I feel really out of step, but I find them very inelegant. They're so vertical and so bare. And No, you know, I think it's me with dahlias. I think because one of my favourite shows that we do is the dahlia show that's part of the Wisley show here in September. And it's amazing. And they are breathtakingly beautiful and cheerful and colourful. But when I grow them, <laughs> Just not the same. So oh, I think it's like me them. that's the problem, not, oh, not okay. the plant. Okay. I'm not sure I like them, and I feel like I should. I love the single ones. I think they're they're gorgeous. With big heads, like sort of cafe like, lait or something. Yes, they're just more flat. That, but I, I do love all of them when I see them grown by experts, but I'm not... I'm not expert gardener. I'm not a horticulture trained. I've just been a very, I just love gardening as an amateur gardener. So we've got amazing experts here. They don't need me to be an expert. 
No, that's not your job. No, it's not. <laughs> and I just heard you talk about Latin names and not knowing them, but you've you've just given a pretty good list of Latin names. Mm, well, maybe, maybe a mixture. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a big organisation that you run. Yeah. How how do you how do you do that? How did you how did you learn to do that? How do you find the self belief? And or has it always been? Have you had it? Has it been something you've struggled with, or is it just? Um, I think, well, I think I was quite lucky, really, from the point of view of when I left university. So at the time, I'd got a joint English and American, English literature and American literature degree. And then I went on to do a postgraduate in tourism. And I was quite lucky because I don't know what I was then, 24, something, 23. I came down to get a job and landed a job with a tour operator who wanted to start a, a tour operation in America. So they looked, they must have looked at my CV and when I went, <laughs> so, well, you've got an English degree, you must be able to write. So I sort of nodded and you've got an American degree, a literature degree, so you must know America really well. Well, I've never set foot in it, but I just nodded. And, and a tourism professional as well. Well, I'd done a postgraduate in the diploma in tourism, but anyway so I just kept nodding and they said so would you like to come and set up a tour operation to America so I just said yes and so I was in at the deep end it, it had been all theoretical up to then and then it suddenly became practical and and you know it has amazed me through my my working life how if you dare to dream and believe that you can do something it it, it so often does come true and it does happen and of course you make mistakes along the way and of course you talk to yourself with worry that you're not doing a good enough job and you get imposter syndrome. But, you know, in the end, I've always just kept my head down and tried to do a good job and tried not to let people down. And I think it helps. I can't, I'm one of six children and I think it helps having brothers and sisters around who both tease you relentlessly and ground you relentlessly. So that's always And support very presumably as well, when it actually oh, yeah. pushed up to shelf. Yes, yeah. So, you know, I, I've always been lucky to have a, a great family around me. And, you know, at least for the 25 years while it lasted, a very supportive husband as I was coming up through the travel industry. So, yeah, I, I guess, you know, you, you learn to be the boss, but it became a quite natural transition in a way. Um, I don't think it stops the, 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 the fears you may have and the worries of are you doing it right and is it good enough? But I guess that's about personality really, rather than can you do a job. But because I love being with people, I think most businesses, whether they're a travel company, a charity, any other organization, it is all about people. And I think, you know, if you enjoy getting on with people and trying to bring out the best in them and create an environment where they can flourish, then you often tend to end up with an organisation that also thrives and flourishes because people are happy in their jobs and can be productive and can dare to dream and deliver amazing things. Absolutely. And I mean, you've put me at my ease as well. We've, we've now met a couple of times and yeah, completely. You, you're just in there and let's get on with this. Let's do it. And I can really see how that is empowering for, for people, that sort of availability and presence that you, that you have, which is really lovely. It must be coming from Sheffield. It's that, it's that northerner in me. <laughs> I grew up. Oh, well, there you go, you see. But I wasn't a proper northerner because I was born in London and my parents were Londoners. So we sort of imported into Leeds. And then I 
came out again. But some people can hear it in my voice, although my yeah. mom's the best to get rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> I had elocution lessons. I didn't realise what she was up to. Really? Yeah. Lord. I know. <laughs> my grandmother used to tell me that I was, I sounded common. And my, at school, they told me I was posh. So there was that. Yes, sort you of can't thought. win when you end up with a hybrid, can you? No. Yeah. I, was, I was actually born in Leicester, but I grew up, uh, you know, my whole sort of childhood was in, in, in Sheffield. So, yes, I've got a mixture of, I was at university in Nottingham and Manchester. So born, I've got Leicester, Sheffield, Nottingham, Manchester, London and Surrey. So, and spent months and months of years abroad buying hotel space and traveling the long haul world. So I've no idea what my accent is anymore. (laughs) (laughs) But it is funny because occasionally someone will say to me, are you from Yorkshire? And I think, how on earth did you know that? Because I feel as if it was bred out of me, but it obviously wasn't, which is lovely. Still there. Still there. And I remember those journeys backwards and forwards to Leeds because my family were in London, but we, the four of us, were in Leeds, past the big chimneys at Sheffield. That's how we knew we were getting close, was those enormous chimneys right on the M1 right there. Yeah, yes. Yes, I know exactly where you mean. Oh, so I'm just looking to see what else I've got in mind to ask you about. So you mentioned your divorce. And when we spoke before, you talked about the garden and how that was supportive at such a difficult time. Yeah, I think I think gardens are amazing healing places. And, you know, sadly, I've had two bouts of cancer and a divorce and they all came fairly close together, really. So I found, apart from my amazing friends and family who were amazing, but my garden was always there to be able to go out to and to be able to. There is, there is a hope that you feel in gardens that uh, whether it is that you still want to be around when the bulbs come up next spring, um, whether it is that... You know, you feel really miserable, but that rose smells so amazing. How can the world be all bad when something is that beautiful? And Gertrude Jekyll always cheers me up, even if there's a a terrible problem. I only have to go and sniff my Gertrude Jekyll rose and the world seems a better place. And then, you know, I think absolute heaven for me is taking my socks and shoes off and being firmly rooted on the grass in the earth and walking around the garden with a glass of wine and looking at what's coming up and hearing the birds song and watching the bees with the big fat bottoms full of pollen and the butterflies flitting around and that's a pretty amazing way to cheer yourself up if you need cheering up and if you don't need cheering up it's a joyous place to be because we're very lucky you know not everyone actually has a garden and I know you know in this terrible time we've all had with COVID for those people who haven't had gardens or green spaces the mental health issues that have come from that are appalling and I really hope that property developers and planners really take note and really that we must do something to enable everybody to have access to green space. And whether that's that, you know, there are gardens, they're shrinking by, I mean, the ridiculous sizes some houses are being built at now with tiny, minute gardens. But even if somebody ends up with just a balcony or just a green space, or that there are communal green spaces in housing estates as they're built. You know, we are human beings that are designed to be outside. We're not meant to be sitting down in front of screens all day long in centrally heated houses. So um, I really do think we need the, the, the developers and the planners to take note. We should have learned enough now from this time to really make sure we have a step change as a result of the horrors of COVID for everybody to have access to green space. That sounds like a bit of a hobby horse. 
I think it is. I think <laughs> that's the campaign coming on. Yes, that's that. I mean, just, just, we've got a lot of new, I'm in Oxfordshire, and there are quite a few new box, you know, little boxy houses being put on the edges of, of Wallingford and Benson and places near me. And they seem devoid of trees. They don't even seem to have trees between the houses. And that just seems to me to be bonkers. Because you can have small trees that don't, impact the roots and then people are looking at a tree out of the window rather than a well I mean our, our science team I mean we've got an amazing science team here at Wisley and in fact we're just next month going to open our new scientific research centre up on the hilltop at Wisley because I mean it's the only it's the home of gardening science in this country and you're absolutely right there are some terrible myths around of you know don't plant trees because of the roots and this and that and the other and there are ways that even cost-conscious developers can still put in trees, can still put in hedges. You know, that will help the pollution. It will help the air quality. It will help biodiversity. It will help mitigate the effects of climate change. So I think we, ha- we just have to become more aware of it. Of course, with COP26 coming this year to Britain, if we don't do something as a result of COVID at the beginning of all of this and COP26 at the end of it, we should hang our heads in shame. And I I really do hope uh, that we can persuade government and all the organisations, it's not all government's fault, you know, it's commercial organisations as well, that we learn from this and really improve green space access for people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it's so, as you say, it's so not rocket science by any means. It's a it's a small space that's allowed to exist between buildings. And that is, it's, it's, it's about not being greedy, isn't it? It's about allowing for well-being. Well, and the, and the other, if you're talking of hobby horses, if we could also carry on speaking to those developers who seem to show an increasing desire to put down fake turf. Oh, my God. So that's a real hobby horse. Oh, absolutely. Because it's, it's apart from it being plastic and polluting and horrible and, and not recyclable or, or get ridable ever in the world, it just... No, it's just a shock. nothing. It is a shocker. Those poor bees, if you ever watch bees landing, I imagine them landing onto that fake turf and getting sort of friction burns from thinking they were landing on a nice bit of clover and they've just got plastic burns on them. So, yeah, we've got to get stop that too. Absolutely. I remember sitting on a roundabout, I think it must have been Portugal, a couple of years ago, in this hot town, boiling hot sunshine, and we found ourselves walking somewhere. We didn't know where we were going and we didn't know where we were and... And it was boiling and it was all grey, concrete, vertical buildings and concrete roads. And there was a green roundabout with a tree. And I made for this green roundabout and it was plastic turf. (laughs) And I, I, I mean, I was just so disappointed. There was a tree, but it was plastic turf. And it was just horrifying. Really, really horrifying. Because what you need is that antidote to all that grey and hard. Absolutely, to soak up that heat. Yeah, crazy yeah bonkers bonkers <laughs> oh, but i think we could go on for hours but, but we could we could change the world couldn't we well we could certainly talk about changing the world <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully you have some power to be able to get people to really listen i'm trying i'm trying yes yes oh well thank you so much it's a great pleasure thank you for asking me on it's a real pleasure gosh there was a lot to talk about and i hope you enjoyed our chat as much as i did 
Links to anything we mentioned are in the show notes on my website at www.growthfully.co.uk and you can check out the RHS at www.rhs.org.uk. I'm on Instagram at Growthfully. If you enjoyed our conversation, do please check out earlier episodes if you haven't already. I've had some very varied and interesting chats with fascinating women. And if you like the podcast, do think about leaving me a review. Five star ones are particularly welcome. Next time, I'm breaking my women-only guest rule as I had a really lovely chat with celebrity florist Simon Lysette. I hope you'll listen out for that one. So until then, bye for now.